and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a Scranton girl. As we continue to wait on maps from Harrisburg, we're really fortunate today to sit down with David Thornburg. David's doing great work promoting representative, ethical, and effective government at the Committee of 70, which is based in Philadelphia. This nonpartisan nonprofit has been fighting for over a century for transparency and good government in Pennsylvania. David and his team have had some very creative initiatives in recent months and over even a period of years that have empowered and educated diverse everyday Pennsylvanians on the redistricting process. David literally has politics and policy making in his DNA, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Representative democracy in USA, we elect legislators, that's how laws are made. 435 ramps in Congress means 435 districts among us. But how do we decide who represents who we draw lines on a map? That's what we do. David Thornburg, welcome back to my kitchen table. Thank you, Ari. I guess I'm a repeat offender. You are the first, but it's been a it's been a real pleasure uh, since January racking up so many episodes, racking up so many listeners. We chatted right before the uh, the primary in the spring, and you know, tell folks what you've been up to over uh, the summer months and now into the fall. No rest for the weary. Uh, my work uh, at the Committee of Seventy has largely been too focused on two things. One is redistricting uh, reform. Although what that means now is doing everything we to can we can to make sure that we get the most fair, rep, most representative maps possible. Uh, we can talk a lot more about that. And then increasing amount of work on uh, what we're calling Open Primaries PA, which is an initiative to allow independent voters, the million independent voters in Pennsylvania to vote in primary elections, which I suspect your uh, listeners know are currently forbidden from voting uh, for candidates in primary elections. So two important things, if some folks say, uh, are actually kind of uh, close cousins of one another, one another in, in terms of their impact on our uh, democracy and the way we govern. And then I suppose the third, just all around good government and transparency when it comes to Philadelphia City Hall, which is, is, is never, never a dull moment. Uh, how would you assess, by the way, the fall elections and the way in which they were administered and uh, some of the latest news out of Philadelphia? Yes, <laughs> you're absolutely right. You know, Philadelphia remains a target-rich environment for organizations like like ours. In fact, we're doing a lot to, to see if we can capitalize on these recent convictions to push for some things which should have happened a long time ago, particularly related to the ability of council members to accept outside, well-compensated outside employment. The fall elections, I think, were largely unremarkable with exception of a couple things. One is, and I'm sure you saw this, there was a, a curiously large number of write-in votes at elections, mostly school board races or some you know, county races around the Commonwealth. I'm still trying to figure out exactly where that is coming from and what it means. But I think, it, for example, I think there was a 
the school board races in Lancaster County, I read somewhere there were like 55,000 write-in votes, which must tell you people are not happy with uh, the choices that they're given, right? Obviously. Well, I'm not, I'm not an observer of New York politics, but I know what happened up in Buffalo uh, with the mayor. Uh, that got a lot of national attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. So write-in votes used to be reserved for Snoopy or, you know, a Batman or something, but maybe it's coming into a new prominence. Yeah, I've been known to write in my wife uh, sometimes when I don't like my options, but... My wife wrote me in for... I'm a registered independent, but somehow she decided I could be a good a Democratic representative on the Board of Elections. Uh, so I'm sure that one didn't go far. The other interesting thing on the uh, this recent round of elections is I think the, you know, kind of the preview of coming attractions and the tensions between the two parties, particularly the Republican Party, and how the the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, which I've always regarded in my dad's, in, in his DNA as, as kind of a center-right party, and obviously like a lot of the other states around the, the country, trying to figure out how to accommodate or reject what we'll call the Trump wing. And the fascinating thing on the Republican, this is not the elections of this fall, but the build up to next year, you know, there are now, last count, maybe 15 Republican candidates uh, for governor, which is unheard of. I mean, that kind of, you know, cattle call was was previously reserved for the Democratic Party. <laughs> the Republicans were much more orderly about their process. So that, too, tells you that something is quite different in the way this uh, nominating process works and the control of the parties and then just the fragmentation, particularly in the Republican Party. So in this third season, we're going to focus on redistricting. It's going to be a mini season. It's it's crunch time. Uh, everyone's expecting answers from Harrisburg or maybe maps uh, instead of answers, maps and answers. Uh, I'd like to, before we plunge into that, just, just touch on, because it does affect you and affects countless other Pennsylvanians, the work on uh, allowing independents uh, to vote in primaries. So if you could give listeners a sense of how those efforts are going and, you know, is that something even as early as, as the spring folks might see some movement on? Well, I'm I'm very encouraged. And in fact, as as you know, this is going to be a, a major initiative for me personally in this coming year. Much more on that. But the short story is Pennsylvania is one of only a few states of only nine states that strictly prohibits registered independents from voting in primary elections. In my view, there are two major problems with that. One is just not fair that uh, duly registered voters, a million of them, get shut out of uh, important elections. They're much more important than maybe they used to be because almost all races now, except for the marquee national races or statewide races, are determined uh, in the, in the primary uh, election. For instance, in 2020 of the state house races, 95% of those races were determined in the primary meaning there was no opposition at all in the uh, fall election or it was uh, token and, and nominal. So there's the fairness issue. This contributes to the lack of competitive elections. And I think the other thing, which, you know, uh, is sort of a symptomatic of this, is that it creates problems uh, when we try to govern in Harrisburg in particular, that, you know, cutting out less partisan voters from the primary election process means 
that what we do is elect people in primary elections from the partisan extremes of both parties, who then have very little incentive once they get to Harrisburg to actually sit down and work things out with the with the other party or the other uh, caucuses. So there's a there's a consequence for for governing, and and that's what you know brings me to this issue and our organization to this issue. And I'm I'm hopeful. I think it's it is an issue whose time may have come in Pennsylvania. There's not a whole lot of, um, you don't find many people kind of outside of the party regulars who really uh, value the, the, the two-party system. Uh, I think people are looking for some way to sort of quiet our politics and uh, make things a little less partisan, a little more uh, problem-solving in nature. So, We'll see. The good news for this reform is all it takes is a bill and a signature. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. There have been bills in the past. President of the Senate, Joe Scarnati, passed a bill through the Senate in 2019 that gave independents uh, this right. It didn't go through the House, but there's a track record of people uh, standing up and voting for it. And interestingly, consistent Republican support, Republican and Democratic support. So we um, uh, this will be very interesting to watch this coming year. Well, I appreciate you giving folks that background. So all these references to Harrisburg. So last month in October, you were uh, testifying in front of the State House uh, about uh, the topic at hand, redistricting. And I'd love uh, if we could just walk through that testimony and share with folks, uh, I mean, you've been in the trenches uh, of this. And uh, frankly, I love the term hands-on citizen mapping. Uh, so if we could cover that uh, as well. Sure. Well, let me just scroll back over four years. It was the fall of 2015. We knew we this was going to approach quickly, this drawing new legislative and congressional maps. And we were eager to see it not devolve into the travesty of 2011, where Maps were drawn literally under cover of darkness and essentially handed to the people of Pennsylvania and handed to uh, the members of, of Congress and, and essentially to the uh, legislature as well. So we said, let's figure out a way to bring more people into the process. And we launched this uh, initiative called Draw the Lines PA, uh, raised some money. We raised about $2.5 million from Pennsylvania foundations, uh, underlined Pennsylvania and foundations. So there's no... There's no dark money. There's no outside, you know, George Soros's or, you know, whoever putting money into this. And we used that money to uh, establish a, a series of biannual mapping competitions available to anyone in the Commonwealth, provided them with the software and the data to draw their own congressional maps. And we succeeded beyond our wildest expectations so fast forward to today, we've had 7,211 Pennsylvania citizens step forward and uh, have a go at drawing congressional maps for Pennsylvania. 7,211. No more and no less. That is fantastic. And from what, I mean, are they clustered in a certain region or it's Commonwealth-wide? They're from 40 of the 67 counties, and those 40 counties represent about 90% of the state's population. And I would encourage your listeners to, to go look at drawthelinespa.org, and you can see videos and testimonials by uh, these citizen mappers. A lot of them young, 
folks, we concentrated uh, heavily on colleges and universities. So we had a good contingent from Abington Heights High School up in Clark Summit and Mercyhurst College out in Erie and a lot of folks from Pitt and uh, Drexel. And, uh, you know, it was was just a, a great experiment in giving citizens the tools to contribute to this democratic process. Well, this will make our founding fathers very happy. This is citizen uh, participatory democracy at its finest. I hope so, because, you know, the power to draw maps, and this is the, the root of the frustration and uh, over the years, the power to draw maps is given to state legislators. But my hunch has always been that when our founders gave them that power, they fully expected there to be a robust conversation between the legislators and, and those they represent. It wasn't supposed to be, we'll go you know, into our back rooms and, and do this stuff under cover of darkness. So that's what we're trying to create, a robust conversation between the governed and those uh, that govern them. And now the question is, can we bring that citizen voice and that citizen power to the process itself so that we end up with the most fair, most transparent, most accountable maps in, in history, which, by the way, has been the public commitment of uh, the caucus leaders, the House and Senate in in Harrisburg. They've said, we want this to be the most transparent and accountable process in history. I say one other thing about the citizen uh, army that we've, we've helped enlist. We took all of the maps that were created and using, starting with basic summary statistics that you could gain from those maps. And we said, let's draw a composite map, call it the citizen's map of Pennsylvania, and produce that, vetted it with a lot of folks beyond just the sort of statistics. And we've been promoting that as at least a starting point for the consideration by the legislative leadership. And, you know, try to make it a little playful and high impact. We actually produced puzzles of the citizen's map and handed them out to the 253 members of the House and Senate in Harrisburg. So they're somewhere on conference tables or credentials uh, in all those offices. We showed up in Harrisburg with a 10-foot by 20-foot foam core map of the Commonwealth divided into those 17 districts. So, you know, we've we've really tried to bring the voice of citizens forward in this process. And, And that's, you know, at the end of the day, maybe the best and most important thing we can do. But but time is getting short. We're growing increasingly anxious because we haven't yet seen dra- official draft maps from the legislative caucuses. So uh, got a lot of work to do in a short period of time. Well, and that, that's after a lot of feedback from diverse listeners. That's why we're devoting a third season uh, right here, right now to uh, this super important topic. I want to go back. Uh, this is a super creative initiative. So mechanically, how how did your team embark on this? Uh, did you start contacting different poli sci professors and and AP government uh, high school teachers? I mean, how how do you rack up over seven thousand uh, creative maps? Well, all of the above. I mean, it was a real creative exercise in in outreach. I think we have ended up working with one hundred and forty. Uh, high schools, colleges, and universities around the Commonwealth. And sometimes that's somebody knew somebody or, you know, we work, there's a, a, actually a statewide association of, of social studies uh, teachers that we worked with. We did events. We came up with something. This is for the older, the above 21 crowd called Bar Games for Democracy. 
where, among other things, we had a, a mini competition to have people assemble the state into its uh, from from its composite uh, component districts and to see who could do that most quickly. And this was, by the way, the pre-2018 congressional maps where the uh, goofy kicking Donald was featured prominently in the southeastern part of the state. So we did stuff like that. We actually, I, I think at one point, had a, a gerrymander, a signature gerrymander cocktail developed. You know, earned media, social media, just trying to get the word out that this is something that citizens could do to learn about the process and then to make a contribution to making things better this time around. So, Well, you know, where my mind went, maybe this is something for the lead up to 2030, but uh, 17 different cocktails or even 17 different shots from Pennsylvania distilleries as we have this growing craft distillery, a beautiful part of the Pennsylvania economy. But I uh, digress. This is fantastic. Okay, so you testify in Harrisburg. Uh, Tell listeners a little about the genesis of that. Focusing on the congressional process, the two significant committees through which all this is funneled are the state government committees in the House and Senate. And uh, so I've testified now probably two or three times to each one of those, uh, making a couple of basic points. One is reminding them of their commitment to transparency and accountability. Second thing is noting the fact that we've had 7,211 people step forward, I'll say, to help in that process. These are citizens who essentially raised a hand and said, I'd be glad to give you three or four hours of time to share with you what I think Pennsylvania and its 17 districts should look like. By the way, I calculated, based on 7,211 mappers, how much time they collectively put into this. And it's like close to 25,000 hours of time, which if you, if that were one person working full time, that would be one person working full time for 10 years. (laughs) So this is not, you know, this is a serious amount of effort. And I wanted legislators to understand that, that these people, you know, really took this job seriously. So, you know, there's this commitment. People step forward and say, sure, I'll give you some time because I want this is really important and I want it to work this time. And then the third point I said is having invited people into this process, you now owe them essentially a response. And the response ought to be in the form of a draft map. Right. I, I said to them, this is kind of like a company putting out a suggestion box and getting 7,211 suggestions. And you can't very well turn around and say, thanks for the suggestions, but we're going to do whatever we want. You have to demonstrate to them that you listened, that you heard, that you've responded. And, And to my mind, all the talk of transparency and accountability really isn't meaningful at this point unless that is embodied in a, in a map that legislators share with their constituents. We listened, we heard, we looked at your maps and so forth. Here's our best shot. What do you think? And ideally, the citizens would have enough time to sort of kick the tires on that map and come back with another round of suggestions. That's how the process is supposed to work. But as I said, I'm, I'm growing increasingly concerned that the, the, the clock's ticking loudly. It certainly is tick, tick, ticking. Let, let me ask you, so this... This began 
when there was a thought maybe we would still have 18 congressional districts or uh, folks went into this knowing that it was going to be 17? Uh, Cause it was only some time ago that the census made that official. Well, the writing's been on the wall. I'll, I'll point out Pennsylvania has been losing congressional districts since the thirties. Uh, I think in the thirties we had 36. So we're now down to less than half, which is kind of um, humbling. <laughs> But for our competitions, we actually, I think the first round or two, we used 18, and then we went, then we shifted to 17. So we've gotten used to thinking, it actually, <laughs> the fewer districts you have, the easier it is to map the, the Commonwealth because you have fewer choices to make. But so we've been working with, even before the census numbers came out, we've been working with 17, and that's what shows up in the citizens map. So you're there sitting in front of Chairman Seth Grove and, and his colleagues, and, and give, we have obviously a lot of listeners from Harrisburg, but give folks a, a sense. I mean, what uh, do you think, if you could get inside uh, the mines or uh, what's, what's going on, uh, um, on on their side of the dais? Well, I'll say first, I do give them credit for you know getting out and hitting the road and listening to people. So that's good. I think... Maybe it sort of reflects what I said earlier about the the fragmentation in the Republican Party. I think there is a sense of something of a sense of disarray. It's not entirely clear who's running this process among the the caucus leaders, the majority caucus leaders. Uh, There haven't been a whole lot of, no one seems to be telegraphing or, or being more straightforward about exactly when uh, we'll see draft maps. Just a, a, a more, I guess, confusion. Unless this is all being done secretly in, you know, kind of uh, secure location, secure offsite locations. The, the most challenging thing is I don't sense the urgency that citizens sense in this. You know, all those thousands of people working on this for the last few years because they, they knew it was important. We only make this choice once every 10 years, and then we have to live with the results. And they understand how it affects the political dynamics of the state. We want to try to avoid the travesties of the past. And yet, despite all that, there is this curious lack of urgency that uh, seems to pervade the process. So that's that's troubling. Well, I think the others that have a sense of urgency, let's just name names, are Congressman Matt Cartwright and Congresswoman Susan Wild. And I don't mean to pick on them, but uh, they're running for re-election. And unlike Connor Lamb, uh, who's running for Senate, who also had a close race, uh, both of those two congressional races, I think, were less than three points. And we know that the district lines are going to radically change. We don't know which way. So I think there's urgency uh, aplenty going around. Yep. And just to put a pin in it, the date that the Department of State says we absolutely have to have maps in place is January 24th of next year. So ballpark, that's about 55 days from when folks will listen to this podcast. And by the way, a bunch of holidays and the new year and so forth, and very few session days, which is, you know, you have to get a vote out of both chambers and then send it off to the governor. Somehow that has to happen in 55 days. So there's always there's always talk and rumors every 10 years, and, and there was a precedent with the pandemic of pushing back the Pennsylvania primary. Do you, do you hear these rumors? Do you, I mean, I, I don't want to give folks in Harrisburg uh, an even longer leash to drag on this process, but I suppose that could happen. 
let's just say, given the importance of the primaries next year, particularly gubernatorial and the Senate primary, and let's just call it the swirling clouds of nonsense around all things election rated, around all things election related, I think there's a there's a re- general reluctance to invite the chaos and confusion that would result from changing the primaries. I think there's sort of a baseline not going to go there. And I heard that and understood that from the uh, the outset. Now, just to put a finer point on it, when it comes to the legislative maps, those actually could be reused one more time if the, if the time is too short. That's what happened in, in 2012 because of challenges to the maps. We, we put the old set of maps to work one more time. You can't do that with the congressional maps. Why is that? Because we're going from 18 to 17. No, you can't have 18 people run for 17 seats. So, and by the way, again, 7,211 people have demonstrated that this is not, there's plenty of art and science to this process, but it can be done. If you gave people, if you lock folks in a room and for even a half day and say, I want to see a map, that's possible. There's nothing standing in the way of coming out with a draft map and getting a good thorough vetting and and getting on with life. So all the more troubling that we seem to be sleepwalking towards an unhappy kind of juncture down the road. Well, David, you've been super generous with your time. I want to just end kind of on a reflection note. When your father was governor, there, there are always stories, and I don't know if these are just stories we hear in Washington, but I suppose in Harrisburg as well of people fighting on the floor and then going out and having a a drink with one another or in Washington going on congressional delegations with their spouses overseas for a week and just more more civility and more uh, comedy and and bipartisanship. So I'm curious, I mean, you were obviously much younger then, but how were folks approaching this uh, during during, during his uh, tenure? Uh, What would that be 30 some years ago? Yeah, I mean, he believed personally and firmly in the notion that you can disagree with people without being disagreeable. And there was a, a respect and a sense of professionalism and a sometimes grudging acknowledgement that the folks that you were doing battle with day in and day out, even if you disagreed violently and vehemently with them, that, uh, that you respected each other and that you were both working towards some common purpose from different directions Sometimes across purposes, as I said, but at the end of the day, that sense was still there. So, and, you know, I think my father, unusual uh, for someone who was a born and raised prosecutor, he enjoyed the political back and forth. He liked to win. You know, you don't get into this business unless you like to win. But um, I think he had a great respect for, you know, the process, the architecture of the process, the rule of law the separation of powers, the federal system, all of the, the all of the components that came that have come together. And uh, as you know, he, he died December 31st of last year. I think he would be frustrated with so much of, of the decay in the political process that we've seen and how a lot of those values seem to be in short supply. He also, though, I'll just say, was an eternal optimist and a, a great believer in the cycles of history. <laughs> So if you wait long enough and you work hard, things come around again. Well, I'm glad to end on an optimistic note. And hopefully uh, the only folks that win are the people of Pennsylvania and not 
one party or another. So David, thanks so much for your time and the work you've been doing. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing. And while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. <laughs>